Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Let me say a special thanks to the orchestra today. What a great uh, time in leading us there. And our brother that sometimes joins us, uh, I'll tell you what, when I was a child, I used to watch the Batman TV show, you know, the reruns of it. And every once in a while, they'd show, it'd show uh, Batgirl riding across the, in her cycle as the show was before it would start, you know. And I was like, well, this is great. That means Batgirl's going to be on this episode. And it was always a little extra special because she was neat in the way all that uh, unfolded and stuff. And that's what I feel like when we've got extra musicians around like that, you know, it's a Batgirl day, <laughs> so to speak. So to speak, it's special, it's special. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue on studying the book of Revelation. And we've come now to the fourth church, the longest of the churches. The most information about this one uh, is in here. It'll be verses 18 through 29. But before we get there, let me tell you about something that happened in the early 1900s. In the early 1900s, there was a flamboyant woman preacher in California. And she had developed a huge following. Well, one day she turned up missing and everyone was very concerned. I mean, it was in all the papers. What has happened to this lady evangelist? And uh, law enforcement officers found her a short while later and discovered that she had run off with one of the men in the church. Well, she came back down to L.A. and uh, Los Angeles there and, and she told a crazy story about how she had been kidnapped and the faithful believed her despite the plain evidence of her sinful conduct. I mean, there was no doubt to law enforcement where she'd been and what she'd been doing. But she's told a story of being kidnapped and this deacon from the church finding her and rescuing her and all that just before the police got there. The faithful believed her and the number of followers uh, grew. And there's a modern denomination that springs from that uh, church background. And over the years, similar things have happened with many other teachers and preachers. Uh, some things happened and uh, they've disgraced the name of the Lord, the work of the Lord. And afterwards, when they're confronted, there's no real repentance. There's a slap on the hand from a church or denomination. Sometimes churches or denominations try to exercise church discipline and they don't receive that. I know that the Assemblies of God tried to deal with Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker after they fell. And both were like, no, we're good. And they weren't good. And... Before too long, they were up preaching the same uh, gospel they'd preached before without the integrity of witness to back it up. And um, back in the ministry. And unfortunately, the church we're going to look at today in the book of Revelation had something similar happening in, it, happening in its midst. And it's actually the second straight church we've looked at in the book of Revelation that had something happening like that uh, in its midst. 
Although many within the church we're going to look at today were examples of great love and progress in the faith, they had some in their midst that were examples of regress, of going back and going back into the world and those things through idolatry and through immorality. And they were influenced by a false teacher that Jesus himself refers to here as Jezebel, referencing the lady from the Old Testament, the queen of uh, Israel that was such an awful person and had messed Israel up so bad. So today we're taking a look, and this is, it's the fourth, it's the longest of the seven letters of Revelation. Hopefully you're there by now. I'm going to read, starting in verse 18 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow or you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, the deep things of Satan, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. That's a simple verse, but it's one worth memorizing. Revelation 2.25, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power or authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The progress of the redeemed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time we've had with you already today. It's been a good day. Good morning. Thank you for our Sunday school classes before this time. And thank you for the ministries, uh, Awana and Youth, to happen tonight, Lord God. We pray that uh, you will um, continue to guide and lead us during this time. We thank you for Revelation chapter 2, what we're learning about you, Jesus, and the things you commend and the things that you criticize, how good it is to know what you commend and criticize directly from your lips. And we thank you also for the promise given to those who overcome by faith. Lord as I think about those who are here this morning and some that are watching online, I think about saints that I've known in these years together here that uh, fit the good things you say in this passage of Scripture, Lord God. You say that not only did they love you, but they were doing more work for you now than from before. And I thank you for that, Lord. Examples here of people that are faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, you've got some stern words here about avoiding false teaching and immorality and idolatry, Lord God, and anyone within the sound of my voice that these words apply to. Lord, I pray that you would bring that person to repentance, Lord God. I thank you for how we read here about your patience, even with someone like whoever this Jezebel was, that you gave her time to repent and she didn't. Lord, it's your tender mercy that uh, 
gives people time to repent, Lord God. But one day, that time will run out. And so, Lord, I thank you for the scriptures that say today is the day of salvation, Lord God. For anyone here that needs to turn from their sin to you for salvation, I pray today will be the day. For any backslidden Christian, Lord God, who needs to repent, lest a sickness, death, or judgment overcome them, Lord God, I pray that their faith will be refined today as they repent, God. That it'll be a day of new start starting for them. Lord, we love you. Bless us as we look into this text. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now for each of these uh, churches and their cities, we've tried to look at some things that were true of that city. And for each case so far, things we learn about the city have directly related to some of the words that the Lord said to them and things they were experiencing. And we find the same thing in Thyatira. So Thyatira was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. It had been established by Alexander the Great 300 years before Christ. Now, the first three cities we mentioned, those were all big cities, but not Thyatira. It was smaller. It was a more obscure city. But bless God, he works in smaller places too, doesn't he? He works in smaller cities as well as bigger cities, and it's so exciting that he does. Thyatira was known for being homes to lots of industries. And uh, it did commerce in wool, in leather, in linen, in dyed stuff, pottery, uh, bronze works, and unfortunately, slaves. And when I say dyed things, I mean like dyed clothing, you know. Uh, so Dan River Mills, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm told that when Dan River Mills uh, would uh, be making th uh, towels and things purple, the uh, water would run purple. And if it was yellow, the water would run yellow and red. Is that true? Did that, did that really happen? Sometimes it, it'd be going that color. Okay. Um, Thyatira was famous for its purple dyes. Do you remember uh, in Acts at Philippi, uh, the first convert was Lydia. Do you remember what she was? She was a businesswoman, and she was a dealer in purple cloth, and she was from Thyatira. So that's a cool uh, tie-in that we have here. Perhaps it was her and her family uh, that had taken the gospel back to Thyatira. We don't know. But each of these trade guilds, these trade unions uh, for those industries, uh, you, you had to belong to. So just as to work in some jobs, you have to be part of a union. If you worked in any of these industries in Thyatira, there was usually a trade guild or union that you had to be part of. And each of those guilds, because it was the day of idol worship in a, in a Roman empire filled with idol worship, each guild was associated with one of the gods of Rome or the Greeks before Rome. They just had different names for the same gods. And each so often, each guild would share a common meal and they'd have a feast. And they were supposed to bring their own sacrifices to these feasts. So get this straight, your, your trade union has its guild meeting and there's a common meal there and you had to bring your own beef, right? So you brought your meat and you brought it up and you'd bring it up to the, where they were barbecuing it there and you would uh, bring it to the altar and the priest of the trade guild would bless it and burn the offering and you'd take it back to your seat and eat it and uh, if you didn't bring that you were going to stick out like a sore thumb right as you went back to a table without meat or you brought it already cooked or something trying to avoid that very hard things for Christians among them to be part of and um, there was a lot of drunkenness at these feasts also and that often led into sexual activity that was encouraged by the different ways these heathen gods were worshipped in general at their temples anyway 
And the prominent gods they worshipped at Thyatira included worship to Diana or Artemis and also Apollo, and Apollo was the sun god, so the sun god Apollo. Thyatira's name was all tied up with what happened in that city. Its name means continual sacrifice. So this was happening all the time. As in other cities of the empire, it was a difficult place for Christians to be faithful to Jesus. Now, as we walk through each of these letters, we see each one opens with Jesus telling us some more about himself that we're supposed to lock into our mind and be part of the image we have of Jesus when we pray to God uh, through Jesus. And so in verse 18, we learn that Jesus is the all-powerful God who sees all. He says, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So in the three letters so far, we've learned that Jesus is with his church. He puts death in perspective, and he's the ultimate judge of our behavior. Here we learn that he is omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all, and he is all-powerful. So it tells us he's Jesus, the Son of God, and he's got eyes like a fiery flame, and then whose feet are like Choco-Libanon. Some of your translations read he had feet like brass, and some read feet like bronze. In reality, it's a word only used here, and in chapter 1, verse 15 of Jesus, only used here in the New Testament, and it's a word that just means some kind of super strong metal. And so commentators say, well, they're not going to understand it unless I say brass or bronze, and so that's why your translations read different things there. But Choco-Libanon sounds like something um, that Worf would say on Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> Choco-Libanon. Strong strength. It communicates strength. Now, this is the only place in Revelation Jesus is called the Son of God. Emperor worshipers would call Caesar the Son of God, but Jesus is the real Son of God. He's God the Son. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he calls himself the Son of Man. So, so far in Revelation, we've reinforced that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. One thing I just love about the Daniel 7 passage that says the Son of Man is going to come on the clouds and come and judge is that Daniel's looking up and he's trying to understand why at the throne of God there's somebody that looks like a man up there since God's not a man. And so he's uh, five, six hundred years before Christ looking up into heaven and he's seeing this Son of God, Son of Man type character up there who's going to come to earth and judge one day and who all, has all authority over the entire world. And what I love about that is Jesus had not become the Son of Man yet. That happens at his incarnation, right? But when he died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave, went back to heaven, he took back to heaven something that had never been there before, exalted human flesh. And he will return as the Son of God, Son of Man, the God-Man, right? And Daniel saw that in his vision before it had actually happened, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Incarnation means the enfleshment. That's what incarnation means. So when you get ready for Christmas and somebody throws around that word incarnation of Jesus Christ, it's the enfleshment of the Son of God, now the Son of Man also. He's the mediator between God the Father and sinners like you and me. Now, I love that these words are written about him being the Son of God, him having the, uh, uh, the gaze and the strength in this city because his blazing eyes are brighter than the sun god, Apollo. When you look in the sun, they burn your eyes, right? So when they thought of Apollo, they thought of brightness like that, and Jesus introduces himself as even brighter than Apollo. 
and the shining radiance of his feet is blinding in its beauty, something those bronze workers in Thyatira would have appreciated it. Think about it. With his eyes, he could see and examine exactly what they were thinking and doing. And with his eyes, he sees exactly what you're thinking and doing. You're never alone, even when you're alone. A thief can look this way and look that way and see nobody and act thinking they've gotten away with it. Nobody saw. Jesus saw. And all sin will get dealt with one of two places. On the cross for those who will recognize their sinners and let Jesus deal with their sins on the cross. Or if you remain a rebel against heaven, your sin will get dealt with at the great white throne judgment where the one who sees it all and the records are being written will bring those records up at the great white throne judgment and then the lake of fire. Oh my, you better settle out of court. You better have that dealt with before you leave this earth. Well, Jesus commends the church at Thyatira for their love and progress. There's your fill in the blank. Progress from verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. We could say endurance there. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. (laughs) He says, I know your works, church. He knows what's happening in Thyatira back then, and he knows what's happening from your love and ministry here at the tabernacle today. And even though he has a stiff rebuke for them in a moment, he first commends them heartily. And that's just like Jesus, isn't it? Trying to catch us doing something right, something he can bless, something he can reward. And if your image of God is as the one who's always just looking to catch you doing something wrong, over and over in these Revelation letters, we see Jesus saying, hey, let me talk to you about that great thing I saw you do. Let me talk to you about that. And so praise the Lord that he's that kind of God. The most remarkable thing Jesus says to them here is, I know your love. Before you speed on by this, you should note this. Of the seven letters in Revelation, only Thyatira hears these words from the Lord being specifically commended for its love, for its love. So we kind of have the church at Ephesus in reverse here, right? Jesus' words to the church at Thyatira are a lot like what he said to the church in Ephesus, except it's the reverse situation. Ephesus excelled at correct Bible teaching, but had lost its first love. Thyatira excelled at loving God, but tolerated false teaching, right? And sometimes it's like that. One church is known for correct Bible teaching, but there's not a spirit of love there. Another church is known for having a loving spirit, but tolerating intolerable teachings and applying those in their life. And it's a constant challenge for individual Christians and churches today. And that's why back in John 4, 24, uh, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's got to be both, 100% of both, right? Because you'll get off track if you got one and not the other, or this one and not that one, right? So think about it. If you, have, um, uh, if you worship in biblical truth and you're good at Bible study, but you don't have a loving spirit, that leads to a legalism that dries up your faith, right? You're, you're making scripture study an end in itself uh, rather than pointing you to loving and worshiping God, loving, and worship, uh, loving your fellow man and sharing the gospel to the ends of the earth. But if you worship God with a loving spirit... Without biblical truth, that leads to liberalism or licentiousness, right? That eventually sees some kind of idolatrous version of the faith developed. True worshipers worship in both spirit and in truth. Now, what I'm saying here is a problem right now. 
one way or the other in so many churches and in among fundamentalists and conservatives and evangelicals in the country. Um, and, and we see this constantly. And, and, you know, when it goes down to having the, um, the truth, uh, having the, the loving spirit without the truth, if you're not careful, then that really can lead to a kind of wishy-washy faith where you pronounce acceptance to people you know without calling them to repentance, and they remain in a cursed state. They remain apart from, the God, apart from God. It's one of the huge problems I have with the false teacher Joel Osteen, you know, he has more than one occasion said, I just want to tell people that God's for them. And he means for everybody without calling to repentance. You get no call to repentance from his speaking. And so it uh, deceives people into thinking that God is okay with behavior the Bible says God's not okay with. And if you're not a Christian, we'll keep you on the path to hell. And if you are a Christian, we'll keep you from experiencing God's best for your life. And so false teaching is a constant problem. And many times, even people who have heard me say that will say, well, you're, you're being unloving and, uh, and judgmental when you say that. Well, no, Jesus names names here. And some of what we need to do when we gather together is to say, I know you like that singer or that preacher or whatever, but uh, they're, they're not telling you the whole story. They're off base this way or off base that way. And we can point to legalistic examples of that. We can point to licentious examples of that. Before we leave verse 19, though, we have to look at this last part. He commends them for love, and then he says in verse 19, your last works are greater than your first. He commends them for their love for God and one another, and he commends them for their progress in the faith. Now, now, wouldn't you like to hear that from Jesus? Your last works are greater than the first. Man, I would. <laughs> Danny? What you're doing as a pastor now is even greater than when you were just getting started. Wow, what a great commendation Jesus gives them that. If you're a teacher, isn't that awesome to hear? A children's worker, a singer, those who take your, seriously your ministry to others in the Lord's name. You got a good start and you've always done things for the Lord, but man, I'm looking down now and some of the best things you're doing are right now, dear saint. And that's what he says to the majority of the people at Thyatira. I look at your lives and I see love for Christ and others and I see progress in the faith. You're faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ and some of the best things you're doing are now, not 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. May that be true of all of us that love the Lord Jesus in this room. Uh, it's so neat that for Miss Dorothy, I mean, she did great things over the years, but man, she was here right up till the time and I'm sure she would have written the script that way. Uh, so neat to think about. Tabernacle worker, what you're doing now is even greater than when you first got started. Well, what can mess up a church known for love and progress? Well, verses 20 and 21, he tells us here, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Whew. So we read here that false teaching that leads to immorality and idolatry can mess up an otherwise wonderful church. Does that sound familiar? It's basically the same message of the church we just looked at. He said some of those same things over uh, to uh, Pergamos right before this. And uh, so, so what's up with Jezebel? She was a self-proclaimed prophetess in Thyatira. That probably wasn't her real name. 
But Jesus calls her that to expose her deception. So back in the book of 1 Kings, Jezebel is a reference from the Old Testament to Queen Jezebel of Israel. And she led her husband, King Ahab, to worship Baal. Uh, But through Ahab, it promulgated her teachings of idolatry and immorality throughout Israel. So Israel was a place during those days that said it loved Yahweh, but all the worshiping that was going on looked like the heathen peoples around them. It included the same kind of idolatry, the same kind of immorality practiced by all those they lived among. And she loved it. She did not like Yahweh. She did not like preachers of God. She hated men like Elijah, right? And she promulgated the uh, advancement of the prophets of Baal that led to that huge power encounter where Elijah called down fire that the prophets of Baal could not. And uh, truth won out. And during those days, there were only 7,000 that didn't bow their knee to Baal in Israel. And so the vast majority of the people were fell prey to these uh, sins of the flesh and, uh, you know, this false worship. I can just about guarantee you that Jezebel in Thyatira was more subtle than the queen of Israel had been. She had developed some kind of following among the church in Thyatira and used it to teach error. Uh, And it's just like the Nicholas had done in the church we looked at before this. Either way, you've got a false teacher, one male, one female. Verse 20 says, she deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So again, we're talking about um, immorality and idolatry. Now, let's connect this back with the trade unions, right? The jobs they had there in uh, Thyatira. Go into your guild's feast meant participating at the banquet and eating this meat sacrificed to idols, which was in essence an act of worship of the trade union God and often included sexual acts of some kind. Now, some of you may be thinking, now wait a second, didn't Paul deal with this whole question about meat and idols back in 1 Corinthians? And the answer is yes, and it appears that they were familiar with that teaching. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul had answered a question. He answered many questions in the book of uh, uh, Corinthians. And someone asked a question about eating meat sacrificed to idols at pagan altars. So it's the same kind of thing that was going on there. And Paul said that those who ate meat sacrificed to idols at pagan altars are worshiping demons. So if anybody did go to that guild union feast and participated in that meal, knowing what it meant and getting the blessing of that God, demonic activity was involved. And to refresh your mind about how Satan works is... Satan will take all the territory you give him as a believer. He, he, he'll just, any vacuum you have in your obedience to the Lord, Satan will just push his demons up in there, you know, to take advantage of the foothold and the strongholds that you're giving him. We're not talking about demon possession. We're looking at the reality that if you disobey God, it will have consequences. Satan will use that along with demonic activity to uh, create problems for you as a believer. He knows as a believer he can't have your soul. Once you become a believer, you're going to heaven. He can't have your soul, but he can discourage you. He can have you live defeated. He can keep you and distract you from taking anybody else to heaven with you and make you live as a miserable, feeling Christian for many of your days, not walking in victory. And so to participate in this was giving the devil a foothold in your life. But it appears someone else in Corinthians had asked Paul and said, well, what about the meat itself? Is the meat itself bad? I mean, we can go to the market and buy it. 
and bring it home. And we know that most of that meat is used in these idol ceremonies, this pagan stuff. But what about if we just buy it, bring it home, give thanks to God for his creation of cows, and we eat the meat after we cook it and, and, and do that? And, and Paul basically uh, said that there's two rules that apply. You don't want to violate your own conscience, and you don't want to make another believer stumble. The meat is not inherently bad. Nothing God creates is inherently bad. We sinners invest bad things into it by our sinful decisions. And so uh, some of the same uh, drugs that can be used illegally, those kind of things are used in a hospital context to make people better, right? So you've got these different distinctions, and Paul helps us with those. You don't want to violate your own conscience. So if you had people over for dinner and, you, and they said, uh, wait a second, uh, that meat is... Uh, uh, what they're going to use at the altar, and, uh, uh, and, and you can see it's really troubling them. They say, oh, let's salad night instead. We're going to have salad instead. And you wouldn't do that to violate their conscience, right? So something that you could do as a matter of gratitude for the Lord at home, if you have somebody that would stumble, you'd overlook it that day. You wouldn't do it that day. And, of course, it would be sin if you were doing it as part of a heathen worship ceremony at your trade union. And you don't want to make another believer stumble. Well, Jezebel had twisted... 1 Corinthians, and she was teaching people what they wanted to hear. To keep your job, you have to do what you have to do. If that means compromises with idol worship and immorality, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. And uh, so she had done that. Now, verse 21 is very disturbing. It appears that somehow, through the leaders of the church or some other way, Jezebel had actually been confronted about this. Some leader of the church, maybe the elders, maybe pastors, whatever, had gotten with uh, Jezebel and said, what you're teaching is error and you need to stop. Somehow she'd been confronted about it. Might have just been another layperson who basically said, look, that's garbage what you're saying, you know. Uh, yeah, the world would like to have it that way, but that's not biblical faith. We need to be distinct from the world and that's an example of going too far and uh, participating in sin. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Whew. So it wasn't just innocent misreading for Jezebel. It was willful rebellion. She personally was involved in sexual sin, justifying it somehow, and would not repent. And she was encouraging others to do the same. And whether it's... Uh, whether it's from things we've heard from religious people or whether it's people like Oprah Winfrey, you know, uh, who many times have given ways to think about stuff that makes sin appear okay. And it's, if God's word calls it sin, it's not okay, right? So if you fear the Lord, if you love the Lord, then you will accept how he defines things. In fact, when we're told we need to confess our sins so that we can receive forgiveness, the word confess is the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing about. So I see something and God's word calls it sin, I need to call it sin too, or else I'm in trouble in my spiritual life before God. So she knew it, she'd been called on it, and she just kept going and encouraging others to do the same. And the church in Thyatira, Lord bless them, they didn't want to be accused of being judgmental. Uh, and so they said, well, we love people and we just hope it'll all work out, you know, and they would not uh, take it to that next step. A 
person that refused to repent coming in, encouraging others to do the same thing. And uh, again, we talked about it last week. There's a difference between it being a Christian who believes and agrees with God and struggles with things. We all struggle. The, uh, Moses said, who is there who does not sin? So did Solomon. And encouraged people to turn to Christ for forgiveness and things. There's a difference between being a struggler and somebody who says, nope, it's God's word that's wrong. It's the church's stance on things for 2,000 years that's wrong. That church needs to adapt and come into today and say it's okay. And whether that's Oprah Winfrey or a false preacher, a teacher, or whatever, it's still sin. Jesus didn't overlook it. Look at verses 22 and 23. It tells us there he'll deal with false teachers and their followers. He says in verse 22, Indeed, I'll cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I'll give to each one of you according to your works. Whew, strong words here that are from Jesus. He speaks of sickness, death, and great tribulation for false teachers and their followers. Now, it's possible some of the teachers and their followers were real Christians. For them, it's probably sickness and death coming. And Paul in Corinthians talks about if you are in sin and you flippantly take the Lord's Supper, some of the Corinthians actually were sick or had died because of not taking their faith seriously, especially the public expression of it together with others. But for the ones who really aren't Christians, they very well might have to go through the great tribulation. So here we are, we're at the first mention of that time that's coming in Revelation 6 through 19, the seven years of great tribulation that Daniel the prophet spoke of. Now Jesus said, in the world you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have trouble, but this is different kind of trouble. Uh, the world has all kinds of trouble, but the seven years of tribulation will be God's wrath poured out on earth. Uh, and wrath directly from the hand of God for the sins of the world. And the Christians, uh, I believe, are promised they won't experience that. But let's talk about the Great Tribulation. It'll be a time of difficulty unlike the world has ever seen. In Mark 13, 19, Jesus told us those days of trouble will be the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again. And we saw it there in verse 22. Those who don't know the Lord will go through it, even if they're professing Christians. If it's a false faith, then some of them will be in that time. But look, turn to Revelation 3, verses 10 through 10, and uh, verse 10 there. And uh, you probably want to underline verse 10 or start or circle it because it's such a key verse to understanding prophecy. He says, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. In the context here, Revelation 3, I believe this is, could only be referring to the coming time of tribulation of Revelation 6 through 19. And that, in my mind, is the most explicit promise that believers won't go through that time of testing God's going to bring on the world for his own purposes. Okay, we'll talk more about that as we go through Revelation. Let's bring this thing home. Verses 23 through 25, Jesus will reward true believers for their progress when he comes. So in verse 23... Uh, he says, I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keep my works until the end, I'll give him power over the nation. He's going to reward true believers for the progress they've made. Um, 
Verse 23 says, all the churches will know that I examine minds and hearts. So when we see these kind of things happening, where we see God reward his saints, when we see trouble come upon those who really don't know the Lord, um, then we understand that God is watching and has his own thing going. What's Jesus trying to impress on the rest of us? As his return nears, he wants us to get serious about first love for Jesus faithfulness until death, having a good testimony, and continuing to make progress. And he commends the faithful ones for not holding Jezebel's teaching. So that's part of it. Our faith means hearing claims made by false teachers and saying, that's not biblical. I need to reject that. Even if it comes out in popular teaching in book form or whatever, we stay away from that so we can stay true to the Lord. Now, what's this about the deep things of Satan in verse 24? The deep things of Satan. Well, we really aren't sure, folks. Um, here's my guess. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, Paul had spoken about the deep things of God, right? And my guess is that Jezebel had borrowed from that phrase and spoke of the deep things of Satan. And so it probably looks something like this. You can never really appreciate salvation if you haven't experienced sin. And so every time we experience sin, it helps us to appreciate forgiveness and salvation more. Um, and you can almost see something like that happening. You know, there have been many young people and people in their 20s and 30s as they look forward to marriage. And one of their friends tells them, look, if you don't have sex before marriage, I know the Bible says don't have sex before marriage. Save that as a precious gift for your spouse. But if you don't have sex before marriage, you'll never really be able to understand what you're doing when you get married. And even as a Christian, God will forgive you. And, and, and you'll be able to appreciate your salvation more if you have a little sin track record behind you and stuff. And you can see how these words get twisted, right? And so uh, going into the ways of Satan is viewed as a way to actually even help your faith. And uh, Jesus isn't having any of it here, and you shouldn't have any of it either. I've told the story, but real quickly, you know, my sister became a Christian uh, four months after I did. So I was saved as a senior in high school. She was a 10th grader. Uh, she was a cheerleader at the largest public high school in North Carolina, Independence High in Charlotte. It was that year the largest high school. And she was with some of her little friends, and they were having a sleepover and things. And it turned out that every one of them had already given away their virginity. And they were making fun of my sister Chrissy for not having, for still being a virgin. And with all the love she could muster, she said, girls, you're just not thinking right. She says, on Friday night, I could lose my virginity and be just like you, but you can never have this purity again to give to your spouse as a, as a gift on your wedding day. And she wasn't judging them. They knew she loved them, and they all thought about that. And a couple of those girls wound up getting saved later on because of my sister's witness among them. But she had enough truth and knowledge to know, no, I don't need to experience sin to appreciate salvation. I just need to follow the Lord, and he'll take care of the rest. So in verse 24, Jesus commends true believers for not being duped by the deep things of Satan argument. He commends them for holding on to their purity rather than committing spiritual and physical adultery. And he makes clear his true followers don't need to experience sin to appreciate salvation. Instead of buying Jezebel's arguments, Jesus says in verse 25, hold on till I come. Hold fast till I come. 
Verses 26 through 28, he tells us that overcomers will rule the nation with Jesus. We read some of those verses already. The first reference is to Psalm 2 that talks about Jesus ruling the nations. And Revelation 20 is going to speak of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Many passages speak about this time to come. And as we continue on in Revelation, we're going to distinguish between things that will be true during that thousand-year reign and the new heavens and new earth to come later on. But one of the main differences is said right here, and that is that people who know Christ now during that time of the millennium will somehow get to participate in his global rule, which is amazing because what it says is there's this reversal of fortunes coming, right? The reversal of fortunes for the redeemed. Now we are oppressed, persecuted, and suffering, but the reversal of our present experiences is coming, and that's what I call progress. Do you remember... The story of the rich man and Lazarus, they both died, right? And the rich man just kind of figured it'd be in the afterlife like it was in this life. Hey, Lazarus got the crumbs outside my mansion in life. So Abraham, have him come serve me now. And Abraham said, that's not the way it works. Reversal of fortunes. Things have been flipped here. In earth, you that had the money and had the resources looked down on those who were clinging to God and faith, and now that's changed. They're the rulers now, and you're not, right? And so that great reversal is coming. Now, let me talk to you that uh, are a believer and yet something I've said today has brought up some way you've messed up sexually, idolatry-wise, etc. When we preach a passage like this that makes clear that Jesus is calling to repentance, do not miss what he said even about Jezebel. I don't know if there's a Jezebel out here or watching online or not. Jezebel is a pretty hardcore bad person from the Old Testament. Whoever this Jezebel was in Thyatira, Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. This letter could have been written another way had Jezebel repented. And there's a story being kept in heaven of your life. Esther's king said, bring me the record so I can hear about the events that are going on. And we know something like that's happening up in heaven where things on earth are recorded and gone over. And you can change what that looks like. And if you're currently in sin or dealing with the consequences of sinning but haven't repented, once you agree with God about it as sin and confess it as sin, repentance leads to forgiveness. That leads to the beginning of restoration. So instead of going further down that line, you can turn back to God and experiencing, experience His forgiveness. And that is true of the worst person that hears this message, as well as the most saintly person who hears this message that's concerned about a far lesser sin of some kind. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.